Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and the art of storytelling, why it's important in the corporate world for you to be able to tell a compelling life story, why humor is an effective tool for connecting with audiences of all shapes and sizes, and how to get started crafting your own personal narrative. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Mitch Dickkoff, the co-founder and president of Idea Champions. For the last two years, Mitch has been named one of the top five speakers on innovation by one of the leading speakers bureaus in the US. In 2010 and 2011, he was voted the number one innovation blogger in the world. Mitch has worked with companies including GE, Merck, AT&T, NBC Universal, Coca-Cola, and many more to improve their innovation capacity. He blogs often at the Heart of Innovation blog, as well as for outlets like the Huffington Post. He has been an adjunct faculty member at leadership development programs at schools like Duke's Fuqua School of Business, GE's Crotonville Management Center, and the University of New Mexico's Anderson School of Management. Welcome to the podcast, Mitch. Thank you, Will. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about why personal storytelling is important in a business context. Why do you think that it's important for anyone in the business world to be able to tell a compelling story about how they got to be where they are? That is a great question. I will take a whack at it. Because storytelling is the simplest, in my experience, and most effective way for people to connect with each other and deliver a message. If you're committed to innovating, collaborating, or getting anything done in a business context, you need to be connected to people. There needs to be trust and rapport and a relationship. People cannot be lone wolves anymore. They need each other. And the quickest way that I've seen for people to really connect is via the telling of their own personal stories. They want to know who they're in relationship with. Who is that person? And can I trust them? Are they authentic? That's what storytelling is all about. Yeah. So, so do you come across people that say, well, I'm not creative or I'm not a good storyteller or, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. And if so, what do you, what do you say to them? Both. <laughs> <laughs> most people, I would say, uh, and I'd say most of the people I work with are, are classic left brain, analytical, logical business types. If you ask them, are they creative? Most people will say no. And they, they uh, equate uh, creativity with the, the, the humanities, the softer arts in their mind, like dance or poetry or writing or art. Mm-hmm. But actually, everybody is creative. It's just that in, in organizations, it often gets buried and suppressed. So my work is really about helping people contact their innate, already existing creativity and building on that rather than think they have to learn a whole bunch of techniques and new stuff, which is way too much pressure and it's not real. So uh, I run into that mindset or that assumption all the time. And yes, people are uh, not confident in their storytelling abilities. Uh, I think one of the biggest fears that people have is speaking in public. Supposedly it's a bigger fear than and the fear of dying. Right. So speaking in public and storytelling really goes hand in hand. So 
So it's really just a matter of demystifying it for people, letting them know that they're already good at it, and they are. It's just that when they think about it in a way that feels uh, makes them uptight, they freeze up. So you just got to make it safe and easier for people to do that and set the right context. Sure. And and so what do you see as the main connection or the main connections between being able to tell a good personal story and being able to innovate successfully? Do you think there's a certain skill set that they both require? There's multiple skills involved. That's another great question, Will. In both storytelling and in innovation, the end game is is getting something done, having an impact. In in innovation, it's it's about challenging the status quo, going beyond the same old, same old, and being willing to do something different to get a result. Storytelling is really the same thing. It's about doing something different, and in this case, using story as a catalyst or the provocation to get the listener, to get the other people to really see, think, and feel differently, to respond differently. And so the two are definitely tied together. There's no doubt about that. And for people that are out there maybe thinking about how to tell their own personal story, do you have recommendations for certain elements that each and every personal story should have? I do. (laughs) There are many books written on this subject, and I've read uh, uh, many of them. And anybody who wants to just Google it, just Google how to tell a good story, and you'll be uh, besieged by advice. (laughs) So it's, it's there for the calling. But to cut to the chase, I'd say the simplest things to consider are, are as follows. Uh, be in touch with that topic or subject that you have passion for. Telling a story thrives when the topic of that story is something that you care about. If you don't care about it, it's not going to come off with much punch. There'll be no emotion involved. It'll be too rote and routine. So first of all is what turns you on? What message do you have? One way of getting at that is to think of what I call moments of truth, something that shifted for you in your life at some point that is tellable as a story, an actual moment in time. And uh, you could get at that by either thinking of the stories you've already told, but maybe have forgotten that you told them, or simply tuning into some key words, a topic like, say, for example, courage, or risk, or failure, or intuition, or collaboration. Pick a bucket, pick a category, and once that keyword is identified, your mind will go to the stories that are hiding in your own internal hard disk, and you'll be able to get access to them. The other things to consider are uh, authenticity in the telling. You cannot tell it like a robot. You cannot tell it like you think you're supposed to tell a story, so you've got to really trust your own gifts. And the willingness to be vulnerable, because uh, stories that are revelatory in which the storyteller uh, cops to uh, something they did which wasn't perfect really uh, dissolves boundaries between the teller and the listener. And certainly humor is also uh, an element to consider. What What is funny about the story? And the last piece is really why. Like, why am I telling this story? If there's no reason, if there's no real message or punchline then it's just really um, 
taking up someone's time. But if there's a, an actual point to make, that's not me being professorial, but it's me delivering uh, a timeless, universal message that people can relate to, that has great power. And so everyone who's listening to this has those stories to tell. Stuff has happened to them. It's sim simply a matter of tuning in and identifying what those are and then making a conscious, intentional effort to, to tell it. Sure. So, so let me ask you about something you mentioned in the last answer, and that's humor. So the importance of humor is something that you talk about in one of the videos on your website at ideachampions.com. What do you think makes humor such a powerful tool in the storyteller's toolbox? Humor is a very, very powerful tool, and, and not just in the storyteller's toolbox. For any public speaker, for any politician, for any teacher, uh, parents to their children, because humor dissolves boundaries. Humor increases receptivity. Humor creates engagement. Humor takes the, the edge, the, the difficulty, the, the oops factor out of the conversation, and it gets people really paying attention. Humor is universal. You think of uh, meeting someone from another culture, and if you can share a laugh with that person, but you don't speak their language, the two of you have connected in a way that will inform the rest of your relationship. I have that relationship with my mother-in-law, believe it or not, who speaks <laughs> almost no English. She's French, uh -huh. and I speak almost no French. But whenever we're together, we laugh a lot. And that laughter has established a bond between us, which is, is kind of miraculous. So the other piece to it is that humor and creativity are very, very, very related. And, and here's just a, a little way of remembering that. The ha-ha moment and the aha moment are almost spelled exactly the same, and they're very connected. In the ha-ha moment, why you laugh is because the storyteller, the humorist, the comedian uh, is telling you a narrative, they're leading you down a path, and they take a right turn or a left turn called the punchline. And that punchline is a moment of dislocation where you as a listener are surprised and delighted. And in that moment, it's involuntary laughter comes out. The aha moment, the eureka moment is very much the same. It's the unexpected, discontinuous, out-of-the-blue moment that happens where all of a sudden the Red Sea parts and you go, oh, I get it, I see. So bringing the two to bear in a story or bringing the two to bear in a workplace will increase the odds of innovation uh, flourishing. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I can't tell you how many people out there, I'm sure, would love to uh... – would love to not be able to communicate with their mother-in-law in the same language. So you're 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 in uh, you're in good shape there. There you go. <laughs> okay, so so let me ask you about brainstorming, Mitch. I, I mentioned in the introduction that one of the outlets where your work is published often is in the Huffington Post, and you wrote yeah. a post recently about how to prepare for a brainstorming session, where you lay out ten rules for successful brainstorming sessions. Can you share with listeners what the first rule? Of how, of how to prepare for a successful brainstorming session is. Yes, I'd be happy to, Will. I would say that the first, if you want to call it a rule, that's fine. The first thing to be concerned with and to be considering is making sure that you, if you're leading the session, 
have identified or framed the right question. Often, especially in businesses where people are scrambling from one meeting to the next, they're overloaded, they're completely uh, overwhelmed with tasks and transactions, and then they they pop into a so-called brainstorming session, and the facilitator, the leader, has never really done their due diligence beforehand to make sure the question itself was the right question. And so what happens is lots of sound and fury often signifying nothing. The, the quote that I like to uh, bring to bear at the beginning of this process with a client or any group of people is what Einstein said. If I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes thinking about the problem and the last five minutes solving it. In other words, if you get the right question, if you get the right issue, that's half the battle. If you don't have the right question, or the people in the room who are attending all have a different sense of what the question is, you've got people in many parallel universes but not focused on the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like shooting a rocket at the moon, if you're a degree off on planet Earth, you're going to miss the moon by thousands of miles. So. This takes for the brainstorm leader, the facilitator, the manager, whomever, uh, a little time to slow down, contemplate, ask the right questions to their internal clients, and do some probing and digging until they get the real question. Then once that, once that question is identified, the rest of the session can flourish. If that question is not identified or it's a bogus question, you're basically wasting people's time. Okay, got it. So uh, let's say that there are listeners out there, Mitch, that want to start crafting their own personal narrative, maybe want to start brainstorming on it. I think one of the hardest places to start with any piece of content is often just that, the start. So do you have recommendations for listeners on how they could get started with brainstorming what they should say in their own personal story or any story that they may need to tell? Sure, I'd be happy to. And, and I would like to preface what I'm going to say with this. There's a thousand ways to start. Mm-hmm. There's no one right way to start. The core of the start process, if you will, begins with wanting to start. If someone is motivated, inspired, turned on, passionate, on fire with the prospect that storytelling is a way to really communicate value and they're committed to learning and doing whatever it takes for them to get better at it, that's how to start. So it begins with passion and intention, saying yes. Mm-hmm. After that, here are some you know, food for thought, simple tips, uh, depending on a person's personality. I would say to definitely have a pad of paper and a pen or a pencil, not to do this on the computer. I would wait for the computer and the digital for later, but there's something about hand-eye coordination, actually holding a pen or pencil, which connects a person more with their own feeling level mind than the quick moving typing on a keyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, to unplug uh, and immerse, so don't do this in the cracks in between meetings, but actually give yourself the luxury of some time. And 
reflect on what I called earlier on this, uh, in this interview, moments of truth. And that is moments in your life, transitional moments, moments of aha, moments of insight, moments of transformation, moments of challenge, where something happened to you that you remember and uh, can be organized and told in a story form. Because the story is just really a container for truth. If you think about all of the scriptures in the holy books in the world, no matter what their language or, you know, what their culture, they're all basically storybooks. They are metaphorical, they are allegorical, they're, they're stories, they're parables in which a large, timeless, universal message finds its way into a tale. And we grew up that way, by the way. Our parents told us fairy tales, which were ways for our parents to teach us the important things. So I would remember those key moments of truth. And uh, if none comes to mind, you can ask your friends. This is a, kind of a flipping the, the coin. Uh, what stories have I told you that you remember? And sometimes you won't remember, but they will. So then you can take those stories and develop them. I think that's a good start. I mean, there's plenty more to it, but that's a good start. Okay, great. So let, let me ask you to share something, Mitch, and, and let's get people fired up about telling their own story. There's a deck that you have up on SlideShare where you have a quote from the author Salman Rushdie on the power of storytelling. And, and not to, well, I am going to ask you to just sit here and recite a quote. Would you mind sharing what that quote is? Yeah, I will. This is a, this is a very intense, multi-layered quote. There's a lot in this one. And the more I look at it, the more I get from it. Here's what he said. Those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. That is a heavy quote, a heavy in a good way. And what I get from that is that often we are the victims of our own stories. In other words, stuff happens to us. We take bits and pieces of it. We frame it into a story. We tell it. And that becomes our identity. That becomes our stereotype. You know, say, well, tell us about your childhood. Or how did you meet your wife? Or tell us about how you started your business. You start at some point. You tell that little story. Then you hear yourself telling the story. And it becomes more real to you, and then you tell it again and again and, to, and again until it becomes hardened, as if that's the only way of interpreting all of that data or those, the lineage of that story. When, in fact, as, as Salman Rushdie is saying, there are many ways you could patch together, piece together, connect those elements, and tell an entirely different story. So if, you, if you're addicted to or bound by yourself telling the same story over and over again, he's asking us to reconsider it and see what you can do to have more power over your own story. Otherwise, you will be your own stereotype, basically, and you become a, a parody of yourself. When you think of, think of Bob Dylan, this is a, a strange example, but you know his story in the beginning was a folk singer, right? Blowing in the wind and all that good stuff in the 60s. He decided to change his story. He kept music alive, 
but he got electric. He went to rock and roll. And his fan base freaked out, like, no, you can't do that. You're the folk guy. That was their story of him. He said, well, my story's changing. I'm going to tell it in a new way. Right. So all of us, you know, have that option in front of us if we choose to. Right. So you're only a victim of your own story if you let yourself be. Exactly. Precisely. And the, the beauty of, of a life of creativity and a life of innovation is the uh, ability to and the choice to continue to write a new story. The country, this country, America needs to tell a new story. The story that we're telling is is pitiful in many ways. Just look at the news or any business, you know, or any brand that goes south. The story they're telling isn't working anymore, but they're bound to it and people get tired of it or it's no longer relevant. We have that same choice and the same need as well. Yeah, I tell myself I'm going to stop going to the Drudge Report every day, and yet I continue to find myself going there. So maybe in 2015, I will swear off the Drudge Report. But I mean, that's 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 a great example, definitely. And we're behind you, Will. Go for it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm going to try to reinvent my news sources in 2015. Fantastic. So, so let me ask, Mitch, do you have a favorite story of your own about how you've been able to enable innovation at a company that you've worked with through the power of storytelling? I have a number of them because I use story in my work. You know, the, the, what, what I do really falls into a few categories. One is, let's call it keynotes. Mm-hmm. A large group of people, I'm up on stage and I have an hour to two to deliver a message and get people to shift their thinking in a certain way. And so in, in those presentations, I will use a story or more than one. And when I do the workshop, mode, which is smaller groups, I'll also use a story. And um, I'll give you a choice, (laughs) as sometimes I give them a choice. There's one story I tell about the uh, power of getting the right question, Mm -hmm. which is called the Joseph the Baker, and that's an apocryphal story. I wasn't there at the time this story happened, but I tell it. The other one is actually something that happened to me. the first large contract my business got from AT&T, uh, I tell that as a story because we got the contract by teaching the head of training and development how to juggle in five minutes. Let's, so which of those two stories do you want to hear? Let's go with the latter. You know, we did an episode on the power of asking the right question. So if folks are out there and have listened to that, I don't want to, uh, to make this repetitive. Right. And it sounds like the latter could be part of your own creation story. So let's hear that one. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll try to be as crisp uh, and non-rambly as possible. <laughs> um, the year was 1987. Uh, my business partner and I had a great idea for a business, which is now called Idea Champions, and it was a business to help other businesses be more creative and more innovative. So at that time, the way to get business was to go to this large convention called ASTD, American Society for Training and Development, rent a booth and, you know, have a little table and meet people, meet and greet. So we went one year to, to that scene to kind of, quote unquote, case the joint to see what it was like. And uh, we just got a big headache. It was very boring to us. Uh, same thing was happening pretty much at every booth. Smiley people, it felt like used car salesmen to us well-dressed with nice business cards and slick brochures, but it was just like ho-hum. Plus, we didn't have a budget. (laughs) We didn't have much money. So we asked ourselves the next year, how can we 
make a difference? How can we differentiate ourselves from the competition and get some results without having to spend all this money for a fancy booth? Well, we decided we were going to have the anti-booth, or a booth in which people would get a rest stop from all the other information overloaded booths, and we were going to teach people how to juggle. So we brought a couple of hundred juggling balls, five of us went, and when people got to our booth, they got a juggling lesson, which was a lot of fun for them because they were weighed down by all the other booths with all this information. On the third day, at the end of the aisle, walking in our direction, we saw a man with a badge that basically declared himself as the head of training and development for AT&T. This was a classic big fish. Heading in our direction, he got to our booth, he stopped, he crossed his arms, he frowned, <laughs> looked at me, and there were like 20 people juggling, laughing, having fun. He said, what is this? Almost a little arrogant. And after three days of teaching hundreds of people how to juggle, I was just in a very playful mood. I said, what does it look like? And he said, juggling. I said, that's right. Then I asked him the question, would you like to learn? Now, this was a moment of truth to this man because he's used to being in charge, the boss, the expert. Now I'm asking him to be a beginner and to, quote, unquote, fail, to drop the ball many times and not look so good in public. So he looked at me and he said, hmm, I've been trying to learn for 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) And then he paused. It was very dramatic. He says, if you can teach me to juggle, you have my attention. I'll never forget that moment. Then he looked at his watch, and he says, oh, I have five minutes. So you see the the task. We have five minutes to teach a man something that in a quarter of a century he could not master. And Stephen, my business partner, was his time to teach. I called him out. He came up. Cut to the chase. He taught this man how to juggle in five minutes. His mind was blown. He gave me his card. He says, I don't know what you guys do. I know you're not a juggling company, but I'm really interested. Call me on Monday and let's talk. And then he left. Now, of course, many people in the heat of the moment are, you know, give their cards away and make promises they don't keep. So what were the odds of this gentleman actually fielding our call? We thought they were very slim. When I called him, His secretary put me through to him in about 9.3 nanoseconds, and he kept me on the phone for 45 minutes telling me about his weekend juggling adventures and how he taught his wife and his son, could I send him a second set of juggling balls. Then he asked me what we did, and I told him, and he got very interested. At that point, we had only one, one service that we provided, which was a creative thinking training, That was the time AT&T was being deregulated, so they needed to help their workforce become entrepreneurial and think for themselves instead of just being civil servants. So he engaged our services, brought us in. We did a two-day training for some of their people, which went quite well. We thought, you know, we passed the test. We got the gig. He said, that could be a false positive. Come back in a month. I'm going to give you a tougher group. We went back in a month. It also went well. We thought we were in. He said, no, i got to try it again. <laughs> Three times. And each time we did it, it worked really, really well. And the third time, he said, okay, this works. Can you? But we don't want to buy uh, retail. Can you teach our trainers how to teach your course and we'll buy wholesale? We said, great. So we basically licensed our training to AT&T and for three or four years, uh, it became a, a very sizable source of income, and then when Lucent uh, split off from AT&T, uh, they brought it in. 
all began by juggling. Now, how do I use that story is when I'm working with a group of people who are also at a moment of truth in their work life where they know they need to do something different. They know they need to take a risk. They know they have to differentiate themselves from the competition, but they have no clue what that looks like. Me telling the story creates a space for people to really pause and go, huh, what would that look like for us? What would that look like for me as an individual? What is my version of that? How could I take a risk? How, what equipment would I need to do? How can I step up to the plate in a different way? So the story becomes a catalyst, not to promote my history. That's not what it's about. It's a catalyst to get people to make their own translation to their own lives. That's how stories in business can be very, very powerful. Nice. So believe it or not, Mitch, that is the second juggling story we've heard on the podcast. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you know of a guy named Michael Gelb by chance? Oh, of course. You know, um, I mean, I know of Michael Gelb. He's uh, quite well known and uh, has written some great books on Edison and Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. And he, he uses juggling also in his work. Exactly. Because it's a, it's a powerful tool. It's a powerful way to get people out of their heads, into their body, and into the possibility of acting, thinking differently. And that's really what the work is. It's a lever. It's a, it's a tool to help people shift the way they operate. And that's also what we started this call with. That's why storytelling is also a powerful tool. And I'm sure that Michael in his work uses stories uh, uh, often because it's a powerful proven tool to do the same thing that juggling does, except you don't need any, you don't need actually any physical juggling balls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. His story was fabulous. It was about getting, um, he and and his partner, I I think he's a professional juggler and and they were somewhere, uh, somewhere over in Europe, if memory serves correct. And and they were spotted by somebody out in a park or something like that. And they ended up on stage with the Rolling Stones, um, for, 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 uh, you know, a night, I think it was, uh, but but they performed with them. Um, okay. So I have a hard time believing it because you're an excellent storyteller, but we are close to the end of the half hour, Mitch, any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be looking to perfect the art of storytelling to drive innovation in their personal and professional lives? Yeah, I, I do. I would say start small. Don't put yourself up in front of a thousand people and, and give yourself the dread and the angst about trying to be a superstar storyteller. But in casual, informal situations with friends, with colleagues, with your family, when there's a moment that is upon you and there's a, a, a topic on the table, if there is a story that you can tell to enhance, reflect, deepen that conversation about that topic, go for it. Don't worry about you know the, the five parts of storytelling or any of the science craft of storytelling. You can read about that on the side. But everyone who's listening is already a natural storyteller. They do and have told stories. So to begin with, it's just to get into the groove, to practice it, to start doing it. And the success will bring success. And then the second piece would be look for moments in your work life where a specific story is going to be the catalyst the lever 
to shift the way your audience relates to you and to relate to the topic. So instead of giving them a PowerPoint show, a case study, a bunch of data and all that stuff, which people are totally bored of and it doesn't have much impact, replace that with a story that, you know, you think through, you can rehearse it on your own and then see what happens. So I'd say just start doing it and watch the results. Okay, great. Well, great note to close on. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about the art of storytelling. Thank you, Will. I appreciate it. If you're interested in learning more about Mitch Ditkoff, you can visit his company's website at ideachampions.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at at Mitch Ditkoff. That's at Mitch, D-I-T-K-O-F-F. Thanks once again to Mitch Ditkoff for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week and throughout the year. We'll be taking a break from publishing next week due to the Christmas holiday, but we'll be back with you in 2015 starting on Monday, January 5th. That's right, we're shaking things up a little bit in the new year, and we'll be publishing on Mondays rather than Fridays in 2015. We figure that gives us a better chance to promote episodes throughout the week, and it also makes more sense to publish on Monday, January 5th rather than Friday, January 2nd. Speaking of 2015, we're excited to have a great slate of guests coming your way. We have Greg Brando lined up for early January. Greg is the former CTO of Walt Disney Studios, and he worked alongside Steve Jobs at both Pixar and Next. Greg is the co-author of the book Collective Genius. We also have Stephanie Rowe joining us in January. She's the founder of the Design Thinking DC Group and an MIT Sloan Fellow. Best-selling author Rowan Gibson will be joining us once again to talk about his new book, The Four Lenses, on the day that book comes out, March 2nd. And for our 50th episode in early February, we'll be turning the tables, and the guest will be none other than yours truly. Fielding questions about the knowledge we've gained over the course of the first 49 episodes of the podcast. But before we get to any of that, we'll have E-Trans CEO John Estrada joining us on Monday, January 5th to talk about the next generation of transportation. John and I will talk about what barriers need to be overcome before driverless cars are available to the general public in mass, when we can expect to start seeing driverless cars hitting the highways, and how driverless transportation will impact our everyday lives in terms of safety, mobility, and the environment. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you in 2015.